We all have big dreams, but far too often we never give them a chance to come true. Well, that all changes today. Welcome to Just Keep Learning, where we'll help you develop the right mindset, be more productive, and learn more effectively so you can accomplish anything. Here's your host, Justin at Just Tries. Our guest today is a wonderful example of living a multi-passionate life the right way. We talk about how to come to terms with being multi-passionate, many challenging topics like addiction, chronic illness, capitalism, marketing, and social media use. He's a musical theater leader, YouTuber, and now a best-selling author of a book he co-authored with his father, Gabor, called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. But most of all, he's a kind person who's great to chat with. Please welcome to interview 37, Daniel Maté. Cool. All right. So thank you so much for doing this today. It's uh, an episode that I'm really excited, an interview that I've really been looking forward to for multiple reasons. And one thing that I love to do is allow people to do a self-introduction because I find when it comes to public relations or anything in the industry of marketing and being an author, there's so many stories out there about sort of maybe who we are, right? And so I love the idea of letting somebody introduce themselves. So if you were sitting beside some nice person waiting for a plane in the airport, you had some time to kill and uh, you were telling them kind of who you are and what you do in this world. What would you say? Well, thank you for the opportunity to define myself. Well, let's see what I have to say today. If I was really feeling myself uh, and wanted to uh, crow a little bit, I might say to that person in the airport that I'm the narrator of the number two uh, audio book on the New York Times bestseller list, and I'm just ahead of Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> Not behind, just ahead. <laughs> <laughs> And then I would, and then I would retreat to some kind of more humble, modest affect because I'd be embarrassed. But yeah, um, I, I'm the co-author of the Myth of Normal, which has been rocking it on the on the New York Times bestseller list. Currently at number ten. Previously it was at number five. It's number one in Canada. Has been since basically we released it. Doing very well globally. Audio is really selling well, and I'm the voice of that. And I'm also prior to that and continuing past it. I am a musical theater writer. I write musicals. I write lyrics and music. That's something I trained to do at NYU. I have a master's of fine arts in that very pragmatic, real world applicable degree. <laughs> and I, you know, I do it because I love it. And I'm working on various shows, always doing development on various projects at once. And I also call myself the world's only mental chiropractor. I can tell you more about that as we go forward, if you like. But basically, I run a mental chiropractic service called Walk with Daniel. It takes place while walking, most of the time by phone, because most of my clients are not here in Brooklyn, New York. They're elsewhere in the world. And I help people get unstuck, help people align their minds, particularly on current situations where things are misaligned and things are kind of just not budging and that's uncomfortable. And they want to have a breakthrough or get a new perspective that'll free them up to be their best selves in that difficult situation. So those are the, the main things I would say. It's a beautiful introduction. I think if we were to be in the airport, I'd have a lot of follow-up questions. And this is great because that gives me a sort of real world role play. Our plane? Yeah. <laughs> we got our planes in an hour. Yeah, our plane has been delayed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We got an hour until we catch this plane. And so that all three or four or five of those topics that you brought up certainly are things that I look forward to diving into. One of those things that you mentioned was the book. That's something that no doubt we will talk about, I'm sure. I wouldn't say you're talked out about it because when you create a book, of course, the job is to just like a movie, go around and talk about it. So 
no doubt we will talk about it. Specifically when it comes to that, though, that kind of combines those topics. I'm interested. Did you add a lot of the music lyric connections that were in the book? Yeah, I like to say any pop culture reference uh, more recent than Great Balls of Fire (laughs) is me. There's a little Bruce Springsteen. There's a little Beauty and the Beast. And some television references too, Mad Men, The Wire. There used to be a lot more. Like I had a Metallica reference in there. There were some hip hop quotes I wanted, but you know, it couldn't all go in there. But yeah, part of my job was to freshen up the prose, make it pop and make it pop cultural to the extent that that helps people relate, connected to things that they're familiar with. And that, you know, I wanted to broaden the audience, the potential audience for the book, make everybody feel included. Uh, and just make it fun. I mean, these are some heavy topics, trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. That's our subtitle. And, um, you know, we might as well have a good time as we explore these topics. So that was always in the forefront or somewhere in my mind as I was, you know, collaborating with my dad on it. Right. And I have read all four of your dad's. I don't know if I've read all of your dad's books, but I've read the four most popular ones that I can think of, maybe five. And that kind of stood out to me was that idea of it seeming like it could kind of connect to a a wider audience, I suppose. So I really was interested in that. The other thing for me is the idea of kind of owning our own creativity and taking ownership over our work, especially when we're collaborating One thing that I recognized in doing some research for this show and as I've gotten to know you a bit as a person is, you know, you have YouTuber in your bio still, which I love. Please don't take that out. (laughs) No, I didn't even I didn't even mention that. I forgot. (laughs) You know, these sorts of things, right? Musical theater. But I know that you've done other types of music, playing guitar. Certainly hip hop's a passion of yours. And you can kind of go down the list of this idea that I suppose leads us to the rabbit hole of being multi-passionate. A lot of people who listen to this show struggle with that idea of being multi-passionate. Yeah. you were to kind of speak to that audience or just your own experience with the idea of not staying super niched down, as they like to say, what would be some things that come to mind? Well, I'd say you gotta, you gotta follow your bliss. And sometimes your bliss can be mercurial and, uh, and, uh, have a bit of attention deficit disorder, like, you know, or maybe, and, and that's, that sounds pathological. Maybe it's just that it, it's, it's promiscuous. It wants to play in a lot of different spheres over the course of your lifetime. And why shouldn't it? One of the things that I've found super helpful of late, because I did have that concern for a long time, rather than feeling broad and well-balanced, which is one way to look at it, I felt diffuse and spread too thin. And at the center of that was not having a felt sense or even and a verbal language for articulating what is it that connects all these different things I do? Like who is at home in the center of it? And for the longest time, I think I was just identified with the activities. I enjoy this. I enjoy that. So on and so forth. And that'll get you so far. It's really helped me to identify what do all these things have in common, which is to say, what am I here for? If I can figure out what I'm here for, another way to say that is what is my calling, not used in terms of what job am I meant to do, not not that meaning of the word calling, but what am I called to bear witness to, facilitate, create, participate in, in the world? What turns me on? Once I started to hone in on what that is, which I can talk about if you like, then it lent a coherence and a kind of dignity, a nobility to this polymath life of doing all these different things. And as so many of them are coming to fruition right now with the book coming out, representing both me as a prose writer and a collaborator with my much more famous father, musical theater is continuing to churn. I've had some months this year where that was the main thing. And I'm gearing up for another big thing in the spring with one of my shows. Mental chiropractic is starting to increase its 
share of my time as the book comes out people are more interested about that so i've been doing multiple you know maybe four or five walks a week whereas used i used to do three or four a month all of it feels coherent somehow i wake up in the morning and i i don't feel like i have to be multiple people they're all just different expressions of who i know myself to be in terms of what am i what am i here for what am i here to provide to advocate for what do i want for people and then since i am included in people i get to have some of it for myself too well, and one of the quotes that's in the book is the David Foster Wallace, I guess we could say infamous, famous quote, that kind of sentiment. Yeah. Well, whether you put it in there, your dad put it in there, a third party put it, it doesn't really matter. I think it's a great addition to that chapter. And uh, perhaps the idea of being a bit of a philosopher is something that underlines some of your work. I don't know. But you said if I wanted you to share what that alignment is and what that is for you, then yeah, please do go ahead. Kind of what does bring those things together? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly I think both my dad and I are fans of David Foster Wallace's writing. I probably read more of it than he has, although he may have finished Infinite Jest. I don't think I ever did. How could you? <laughs> read every footnote. I loved it, but I just didn't finish it. Yeah. yeah, that was a, you know, that's a parable he gave as a commencement speech at Kenyon College, and uh, it, it's gone viral since his, uh, his untimely demise at his own hands. So this thing about, you know, the sort of the alignment, the what am I here for? I'm borrowing this from some friends of mine who used to do a workshop on this. I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but they devised a kind of a way of articulating one's calling that doesn't have anything to do with one particular activity, but rather it's an ex a human experience that one wants to be in the room for more than anything. That moment when someone gets something, whether or not I am the facilitator of it, whether or not I have anything to do with it, or if I'm just in the audience, but I love seeing it. It's the ultimate, we love to see it, folks, you know? <laughs> When that thing happens for somebody, I'm complete. I disappear as a concern for myself. I am present. I'm fulfilled. And I used to tur I, I used to phrase mine, and you can sort of look back in your life and say, okay, when's the last time I was present to something happening for someone else? It's a better metric than something that happened for me, although it, it should include me too, ultimately something that I like happening for myself. But when did I last witness somebody having a moment of something and I was just riveted and I was just turned on, like, you know, my it, it rang my bell. And um, the phrase that came up for me was people being free and clear, that moment where something gets clear and there's freedom. And for a lot of years, that was how I phrased it. And it was from that, only I have to know what that means. Like I know what experience that refers to. That phrase, free and clear, can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. But to me, I, I, I have the taste bud for it. It's an experience and I know it when I see it and I know it when I experience it. More recently, actually, in the past couple of weeks, I've realized there's a, a better way for me to put it or a way that's more current, which is that people are crystallized, that ideas crystallize, that something that was previously dense and opaque and heavy becomes translucent, where one's purpose becomes clear, where one's responsibility in a situation becomes clear, and you're just like, oh, shit. Okay, yeah, I see it. I see it. That's it. And that applies to my musical theater work, because what am I doing as a lyricist and a composer? I'm trying to crystallize moments in lyrics you know, the essence of lyric writing, it's a very economical form. You know, you don't get to spout off for pages and pages of free verse. Right. You know, and even poetry, you're trying to you're trying to sum things up. But lyrics are bound in time by music and line length and the form, you know, and you can push against it, but ultimately you're working in an economical art form where as the great master of musical theater lyrics and music, Stephen Sondheim, who left us last year, said less is more. 
and God is in the details and it's all in service of clarity, he said. So that to me is about crystallizing language down to its essence to get to the real truth of the moment and not just the moment, but the moment as expressed by a particular character in a particular situation, in a particular story. So I love that moment when theater, music, lyrics can do that. And I love seeing audiences get it. I love seeing actors be able to convey that. I love getting that myself when I'm seeing someone else's show. And that's what I always aspire to. With mental chiropractic, obviously I'm aiming for a crystallization of something. And also crystals can be beautiful. Like on Breaking Bad, you know, when Hank was like obsessed with minerals and his wife, Marie, would say, you got another box of rocks. He'd say, they're minerals, you know, because <laughs> the minerals have the crystals in them. They got the, the beautiful sparkly. And if you have the eyes to see them, that's what it's all about. And of course, with this book, I mean, I think my dad's calling would be different. You know, his calling has something to do with people being free or, or I mean, he'd have to articulate for himself. But from what I can see, he wants people to see the truth. He wants people to be enlightened, lightened up at least, you know. We have complementary purposes and complementary skill sets and passions that when they align and we work together, we're a pretty great team. So that's how I phrase it for myself. And it's, you know, sometimes mental chiropractic walks I do are to help people crystallize their own calling because it's not always obvious. And the more precise you can get it, the more then you'll be able to generate whatever you're generating from a felt sense of what that is and from a kind of deep desire to provide that in the world or to see more of it in the world. And I think we each have something like that, even if that may seem a little daunting at first. I love that. And I think that when it comes to the idea of being aligned, I feel that we certainly are aligned for a couple of reasons, because for one, you brought up the idea of musical theater in that answer. And I was just going to ask about that next. But quickly, one thing that I'd like to share is that I used to have a lot of existential angst, so to speak. And I feel that it's shifted into sort of existential joy as I too have found alignment in the idea of essentially modeling learning and growth mindset, collaboration, and building a community around trying to bring people up instead of tearing people down. And I could kind of go on about micro values, but I think that's sort of like the hub of what I'm doing with building this brand. And until I found that alignment between them, it was pretty hard. Like, what the heck am I doing on social media? You know, when I write, what am I writing and what for? And why do I have this job or that speaking engagement or whatever? And I, I really struggled with that. I appreciate you saying that that idea of finding that connection between them can be so helpful for people because it certainly has been for me to bring it back to that idea of theater. I feel like I'm so excited to ask about that. You are a true expert, but sometimes it can be hard to break down things for a true beginner when we are experts. That's one of those uh, challenges, dichotomies or paradoxes of the idea of sometimes it's easier to learn from the beginner instead of the expert because they're also going through those things in the same moment. All that to say- well try me. All that to say, I know that musical theater could have like a master class. I'm not sure if it does, but I'm sure if it did, you could teach it. So, you know, what would be some of those overarching themes to somebody who doesn't know about it that would debunk some of the myths maybe? Yeah. Well, I have taught a master class on it, but I've taught it to writers, lyricists and composers who want to write songs for the theater. I can tell you what, I, what you know, attracts me to musical theater. It's the combination of two things I love, music and theater. I did not grow up as a musical theater kid. You know, I'd never seen a Stephen Sondheim show until I moved to New York. I There's a lot of the classic musicals I didn't see. A lot of kids grow up doing Guys and Dolls and The Music Man and Hello Dolly and um, 
South Pacific and those classic musicals in high school. I never did. I was an actor doing straight plays. And then I was also a musician. I've been playing piano since I was a kid, guitar since I was a teenager. I was more into, and I didn't think of musical theater as particularly cool. And I was kind of into being cool. I was a bit of a snob. So I was listening to (laughs) Soundgarden and Faith No More and the Beastie Boys and uh, Metallica and also Ani DeFranco and the Indigo Girls and Bjork and Radiohead. But anything but these big, showy, effusive of that Broadway sound just rubbed me wrong. But what I learned is that it's not all about that and that you don't want to paint with too broad a brush. There are some incredible, groundbreaking, beautiful musicals that have really stood the test of time. And see, when we talk about musical theater, what we're talking about is the American musical theater tradition. It has its roots in European opera and then operetta. It has its roots even in like minstrelsy and like the sort of Southern storytelling traditions, Dixieland, jazz culture that grew out of New Orleans and all that. And then New York vaudeville, Borscht Belt humor, the Jewish comedians of the early 20th century. You know, a lot of immigrants and marginalized groups that formed the fabric of the American mosaic contributed a lot to the musical theater tradition. And, you know, in the 20s and 30s, you have these light entertainments, musical comedies, where it's just basically just an excuse to get people on stage singing popular songs that everyone already knows. And you just stitch together some loose... It's like a variety show. It's almost, you know, it's like Donnie and Marie or Sonny and Cher. Like, you just... But live. At a certain point, you know, most musical theater historians place it on the map at a particular moment when Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote the musical Oklahoma, which some people might have heard the song, you know, Oh, what a beautiful morning. That's the opening song to that show. That was the first American musical, it's generally agreed upon, that did something that all musicals since have done, which is songs became part of the storytelling so that the story and the characters are expressed. The the, the most important moments become songs. And the lyrics drive the story forward. They teach you everything you need to know about the characters. And so what that does is it heightens the reality of, I mean, a world in which people could break into song. The the cliche is people sing in musicals when they can no longer speak, when, when the emotion gets too much. And when it gets too much that they can no longer just sing, then they dance. So it's this three-dimensional way of representing these big moments in a story. And some musicals are completely sung through. They don't have any dialogue. It all becomes part of the musical score, which is more similar to the opera tradition. And some of them are called book musicals, where there is a book or libretto, basically a dialogue-like, play-like script that runs through it and from which the songs emerge. And the tradition has gone through many, many different phases. West Side Story, that was a very big, ambitious combination of opera, ballet, and musical theater storytelling. And it was about street gangs in New York, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, telling about the Jewish experience in Eastern Europe. And that actually has become the most one of the most produced musicals all over the world. You have people in Japan doing it. You have people who have never met a Jew in their lives. But somehow the, the story of these religious persecuted Jews in, you know, the steppes of Russia connects with people. It's about home. It's about place. It's about tradition. Around the 1970s, late 1960s, there there arrived a tradition that really Stephen Sondheim was the pioneer of, which is to write really darker, more gritty, realistic stuff. You're not going to some fantasy land. You're dealing with neurotic, unhappy, lonely New New Yorkers who are having affairs and failed marriages and stuff. And then from there, it just went off in all kinds of directions. And, you know, the big mega musicals of the 1980s, Cats, Phantom of the Opera, Rent in the early 90s, which, you know, brought it back to the gritty urban bohemian 
bohemian life and dealing with like the issues that were plaguing a particular generation, AIDS, economic insecurity, sexuality, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, on and on and on. And I joined just the current of that around the mid-aughts. At this point, it's a wide open playing field. It feels like there's nothing you can't write a musical about. And I've taken advantage of that because I don't want to write a traditional song and dance, boy meets girl, or, you know, small, plucky, small town overcomes impossible odds or something like that show. I want to tell stories that that move me, that interest me, and I want to also bring in music that sounds kind of like the music I love listening to. You know, you can't just, I mean, there are jukebox musicals where you just import, like Green Day had a musical. They made a musical out of Amer- the American Idiot album. Alanis Morissette, they made a musical out of Jagged Little Pill. He just tacked a script onto it. Some of them are better than others. It works. You know, it, it can work. But I'm talking about original musical theater. Most pop songs don't work in the context of a musical theater story because most pop songs are not designed to express what a character is going through in a particular moment that the lyrics aren't specific enough and the purpose of the music is to make you groove or it's the kind of thing you want to hear over and over again that's interesting a musical theater song you got to catch it the first time because it's happening in real time and it's part of a story so part of the craft i've had to learn i'll wrap my long synopsis up with this is that how do i create songs that sound cool to me that use musical ideas that i love that find what's theatrical and dramatic in the genres that i love while at the same time being true to the principles of storytelling so that the audience is really leaning in and listening to every word rather than just sitting back and comfortably grooving in their seats. That's interesting because obviously they have a lot of pop culture-ness to the, uh, certainly their hits. But when you mentioned that idea of storytelling through music and actually kind of going deep with it and you have to catch it the first time, it made me think that someone like a Billie Eilish and Phineas duo could make a pretty cool musical because really they've been so true to a lot of the stuff that they've created from such a young age. Mm-hmm. That being said, you brought up the idea of not finding it too cool, so to speak, to do the theater piece when you were younger. I can definitely relate to that. If you were to give some tips, though, on making it something that's entertaining to that audience or like you said, storytelling, because I know youth know how to start a YouTube channel or they know how to create a hip hop song like somewhat naturally or they figured it out, you know, socioculturally how to get into those worlds. But theater could be accessible to someone in their teens, I'm sure, as far as a goal or aspiration. What would you say are things to kind of help them realize that it could be cool or maybe how they might make something? entertaining? Well, I mean, look at the success of Hamilton. Global phenomenon among people who are not interested in American history or musical theater or even hip hop. There's something really exciting about it. Now, I have mixed feelings about Hamilton, some political, some aesthetic, but I can't deny it's a formidable accomplishment. You know, it's like whatever excites you, do you have a story? It starts with the story. Like, what story do you want to tell? And if you have a story you want to tell, Could songs enhance it? Does it need to sing? Or would it work better as a play or as a radio play or as a, or as poetry or as a novel or as a short story? Content dictates form. That was the other dictum of Sondheim, which means you you can't know what form to put it in until you know what, what it is. You have to really know what it wants to say. And then a form will suggest itself to you, Mm -hmm. whether it's visual or performing arts or anything else. And if someone is going to choose to do musical theater, then I'd say, see as much musical theater as you can figure out what you love, figure out what you hate, figure out what mistakes you don't want to make, figure out what rules seem to apply and which rules you're interested in bending or breaking. But get to know it. I've had to humble myself. I like being the smartest guy in the room. And when I arrived at grad school, I was not. I mean, I was smart, but I wasn't the most knowledgeable. Uh, There's a lot of people in that room who were much more steeped in that culture than me. And I was intimidated. First time in my life, I was intimidated as a straight guy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, 
all of a sudden I was in the minority. And, um, and that was really productive for me because I had to learn to listen and collaborate and admit what I didn't know. And then at a certain point to trust my own instincts and to find my own way of adapting my songwriting style to match the function of storytelling. And I just kind of followed it from there and I didn't concern myself with writing something that's gonna be entertaining for people. I've always tried to write something that I like. As far as I can see, my favorite stuff is created by people who create something that they would love to see. And then it finds an audience or it doesn't find an audience. And some shows flop out of the gate. They close after 15 performances and then they go on to have a a cult life for decades after because people recognize in retrospect how valuable it is. A very good friend of mine has a show on Broadway right now that won the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony Award this year for Best Musical. And this is a show that he's been working on for 18 years. And for 16 out of those 18 years, there was no way this thing was ever even going to get to off-Broadway. It was just this labor of love that he had to write. It was coming out of him. It was about his life in a sense, but not just his life. It was about a human struggle. It was about creating something that was, it was cathartic. You know, he had to write it. He called it a a life raft for himself while he was temping and working as a Broadway Disney usher and doing all kinds of other indignities. But he kept working at this and eventually it found its audience. And now it's changed hundreds of thousands of lives of, you know, people who have seen it and it's inspiring people from communities who never saw themselves represented in musical theater. It's about, you know, a black, gay, fat musical theater writer who is very, very insecure and is plagued by his thoughts who are hilariously cruel. And the amazing thing is, I am none of those things except a musical theater writer. I don't tick off any of those identity boxes. But do I know what it's like to have a a mind full of sadistic, self-sabotaging thoughts? Yes. And when I see that show, I'm like, that's me even though I'm very unlike that character. That's the, that's the magic. You get really specific and granular with it. You tell your story, whatever story there is to tell, whether it's autobiographical or not, and you have no control over who's going to relate to it. But there is something magnetic about someone being truthful. Right. And if you can write good songs and collaborate well, because not everybody can do everything. Some, you know, some shows I write music and someone else writes lyrics. Actually, that's not true. I've never written a show that way. Sometimes I write lyrics and someone else writes music. Sometimes I do both. Sometimes I write the script. Sometimes I collaborate with someone on the script. You can play well with others and know your strengths and know what the story needs. And I hope these principles apply to other disciplines too, you know, for the people listening. Then you're doing your work. I'm sure they do apply. I mean, there's so many things, so many connections. And what always happens on this show is I'm like, I'm probably 2% through all the kind of concepts that I knew would be great to uh, tap into your beautiful mind on. And yet I can still keep going down the musical theater road, at least for a couple more questions, because, you know, there's just so many connections. Uh, But first, I want to ask, what is his show called? His show is called A Strange Loop. And it's on it's on Broadway now. And if you get to if you get to New York City, I can't recommend it enough. And if that's not realistic for you, the cast album is on Spotify, iTunes, all of that. You can listen to it. You can stream it. You'll get a good sense of it. You know, you'll miss out on a lot because a big part of what makes it amazing is the script. But with the synopsis I just gave you, the songs are fairly clear. Cool. I really appreciate that and hearing those stories because to me, again, the idea of growth mindset, but more just sticking with your passions and as you put it, life raft, because it's so important to our lives. A lot of youth that I've been supporting over the years want that play to be successful after six months, or they want to start a business that's successful after two years and reminding them that building something for 18 years is okay, as long as it connects. 
gets to your love and your actual meaning, purpose, perhaps, because that calling, and maybe it'll pop, maybe it'll be successful, Mm -hmm. maybe it won't, but as long as you're doing it because it's important enough and you need to tell that story, then it's worth it. And that's very much what this shows for me. That's very good. And so great. And then also, who gets to define success? I mean, this is the most... This is kind of a cliched point, but it can't be stated enough. If you, if, if success for you means Instagram followers and YouTube plays and profiles and newspapers and magazines and tickets sold, well, that's a limited view of success. What is, what, what would success look like for you now? What's the next thing? For me, if I can complete a first draft of a show, a first draft of a show that I'm happy with and that I'm excited about and that I want to do some more of, that's a success. If I can get actors in a room subsequent to that, to have them read it and learn the music and sing it out loud just for a week so I can hear it, that's a success. You got to find inherent joy in what you're doing. Now, this eventually will clash up for many people against another factor, which is the need to make a living. And this is why it can be dangerous to pin all your hopes put all your eggs in the artistic basket because art and commerce don't necessarily mix. They certainly don't have any necessarily have anything to do with each other, except when it comes time to put something out there that's been created. And I can tell you writing the myth of normal was a very new experience for me. All of this is having the book out, having it succeeding, all of that succeeding commercially and critically. You know, one of the things that makes it different is that when my dad and I signed the book contract for this and the next book we're going to write, I knew without a doubt that it would see the light of day unless we fucked up or, or, you know, something happened. That's a contract. A publisher wants it. They're going to invest in it. It'll come out. Doesn't happen in musical theater. Almost never. Even if a theater commissions a show. I've had a show commissioned by a theater that was very excited about it. Made all kinds of assurances that they were going to do it. They ended up changing their vision for what their production model was and the show got cut loose. And now it's kind of a free-floating phantasm that we're trying to find a new home for. You know, you do get fortunate sometimes. You do sometimes earn your way to more of a secure assurance that your stuff will see the light of day. But for the vast majority of artists, creative people of any kind, you're hawking your wares, Mm -hmm. you're creating it, and you may need to do other things, as I did for many years. Fortunately, many of the things I did were in and around my industry. I wasn't being a writer, but I was helping other people. I was transcribing music, but I was also babysitting and doing drywalling very poorly and uh, gardening. (laughs) And, you know, but whenever I was doing it, I knew what it was for. I knew what it, what the purpose was and why, you know, and when I lost sight of that, it was very depressing. It's interesting you brought up the Instagram followers and the idea of commerce versus art in the same kind of sentences there, because one of the chapters that stood out to me, I think it was the 13th, and it was the idea of forcing the brain in the wrong direction. And a lot of the topics in there that I had made note of, I think was kind of social media being a double-edged sword, as well as the idea of that sort of shell of success and, and what we consider success. And it made me think of asking you, do you want to start? a school together. (laughs) And the other thing that was in there was the idea of play, right? The art of play, the ability to allow kids to explore and play. So it's sort of play, you know, what's good about social media, what's bad about it, and then this shell of success. Yeah, well, I don't think I I don't think we have much to say about what's good about it, quite frankly, that that chapter is about how our society literally is forcing the brain in the wrong direction, how this toxic culture so misunderstands or disrespects the developmental needs of children that we haven't we have an area called uh, a discipline or an industry called neuromarketing, where there are people who whose job it is to understand brain science so they can exploit it to sell stuff to kids at increasingly younger and younger ages. Now, social media can connect us theoretically, but the people creating it have much more cynical aims, you know? I mean, not to be doom and gloom about it, but you got to be awake to 
the dangers of these things. And look, I'm 47 years old and Instagram, there are days when it rules my life and it sucks. You know, imagine what it's like for a 12 year old who's desperate for friends and trying to find themselves sexually or whatever else. For sure. And and I was going to say that it was so beneficial to have been able to connect with you through these opportunities. You know, I'm here in Ottawa, Canada. You're in New York. I can send you a message, even a voice note. It's convenient. There's the benefits to it. That's true. I have my own personal systems to make. And again, I'm aware because I've read books like this, right? And those sorts of things. But so many people who listen who are listening aren't aware. I know that you just mentioned the neuromarketing. What are some other things that maybe you would suggest? Or have you found success with being able to make it a small part of your life? No, I would not hold myself out as an example or or, a, or, an, or an expert on how to manage social media, except to, to notice how you feel when you do it. You know, look, currently, there's a lot of eyes on the book. People are excited about it. Part of my job, I think, to promote it. It's nice to get praise. It's nice to hear that it's connecting and making a difference for people. So I'm allowing myself a certain leash to just do that right now and not worry about it. I mean, I remember in the in the the sort of peak of Facebook, which was, you know, in the early 2010s before Twitter took over. I was using Facebook as a dumping ground for all my deepest insecurities and fears and just deep sharing, which I would say was a sort of pseudo authenticity. It was like a facsimile of really living an authentic life because I could get an instant response, instant validation. And I could be more candid than anybody and more searching and more insightful and cleverer. And at a certain point, I just cut that out. I'm like, what am I really getting out of this? Am I connecting with the people I really care about? Most of the people who are liking this I barely even know. And I noticed myself, I actually had a term. I was like, I have high value targets and low value targets. Hmm. Listen to this language. You know, I sound like a drone operator, <laughs> but I was looking for certain people to like my shit. Right. And if, if certain other people liked it, it's like, wow, that's worth less. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the, the properties in the first, the first side of the monopoly board, as opposed to like park place and, and, and boardwalk, you know, mm-hmm. crazy, crazy, turning people into commodities, turning, you know, and, and just consuming this value. And of course, that's dopamine. That's a drug. That's the same drug that sex addicts get used to. It's the same drug that cocaine addicts get used to. They're not after the cocaine. They're after the dopamine. And if it's not sourced in a sustainable way, if you're, if it's addictive and it has negative consequences, then there's going to be a crash. So I had to start noticing the crash. And at a certain point, I just got sick and tired of it. So how can I use this as opposed to letting it use me? Sure. I don't have any practical tips to give it, give anybody because I am just as likely as anyone else to fall into it. And, you know, I've been thinking in the past few days that it's time to start imposing some some restrictions. But I mean, I guess one metric is, am I getting everything else done that I need to do? Am I fully present for it? And if I am, then at least it's not bleeding into other parts of my life. But it's a problem. Yeah, that plus being aware of it, I'm sure are two kind of helpful boxes to check. Just talking about it is helpful to anyone listening. Again, with that sort of shell of success and how outwardly society rewards a lot of these things. I was on Instagram yesterday, speaking of which, and saw a post that someone pretty famous as an entrepreneur, real estate dude, blah, 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 had posted. And he said that he wanted his audience to know that the reason why he's starting to share all of his wins, like, you know, the fact he has a Tesla and a mansion and blah, 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 and a nice watch was because because one of his mentors told him that that's what's going to help him get through to his audience because they're going to aspire to also achieve those things. And it was incredible to see the, I don't know, maybe thousands of comments that were underneath it, you know, saying, yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for inspiring us and motivating us and all this kind of stuff. And even just looking at that reminded me of how important it is to try and get more messages out to youth who will see that post and be one of those thousands of people who, again, that's why they make certain decisions as opposed 
opposed to because things actually matter to them. And that's just fascinating to me, you know, and again, it goes back to maybe that dopamine that you talk about. Well, and it goes back to the values of our culture. I mean, I, I can't quite tell from your description if you're talking about that as a an admirable thing. I, I think it depends on your, your vibe. For me, people flaunting material possessions, I, I just, I scroll past it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, real estate, entrepreneurship even, like, I guess I am an entrepreneur in a way. I undertook something and I've got this mental chiropractic thing, but I don't treat it like an entrepreneurial business and I don't follow entrepreneurs. I don't speak that language. It turns me off. That's just me. I'm looking for authenticity. I'm looking for complicated thinking. I'm looking for new ideas. I'm looking for humor. And and I find capitalism has the tendency to ruin everything. (laughs) Which is not to say don't go into business. I mean, the fact is I live in a world of business and of capitalism and I'm at the receiving end of many of its goodies. You know, I just don't like to get my hands dirty with it. So it's unlikely that I'm going to invest in real estate or things like that. It just doesn't turn me on. There's nothing about it that rings my bell. If it's different for you, then great. I mean, you're playing a big game. You're pushing your limits. You're communicating with people, influencing the world in whatever way. Yeah, not an admirable, not not an ad, admirable way at all in in my case, and in fact, very much the opposite. But without wanting to slam other people, because like you said, everyone, you know, do your thing. Yes, okay. But showing the planes and all of that stuff to flex when your particular target audience is youth, it just reminds me, I guess, what I'm saying of trying to market to young people neuromarketing as far as like online goes. Like, hey, you can be a millionaire because I can teach you how to create this business model, or you know, sell an ebook and be a billionaire in a week and all the kind of stuff that kids scrolling, wanting to start businesses or wanting to pursue even hip hop, right? There's probably someone out there saying the same thing. I'll sell you my course on how to be a hip hop artist and succeed in six months or yep. blah, blah, blah. More, I was saying it frustrates me. Yeah. Well, what did Black Thought of the Roots say back in 1999, I think? He said, the principles of true hip hop have been forsaken. It's all contractual and about money making. That was 97, actually. in the song What They Do, long before he was on the Jimmy Fallon show and Questlove was doing iced tea commercials. Not iced tea the rapper, but iced tea the product. The drink. The drink. Yeah. You know, can't knock the hustle as the Jay-Z song goes. But I mean, I just don't really want, I can't see myself having any authentic part of it at this point. And that, what that person said, what their mentor told them is just such a strange thing to say to me because, you know, that you got to do this because that's what's going to influence kids. Well, why do you want to influence people? What do you want to influence them to do? Hitler was an influencer. Napoleon was an influencer, Genghis Khan was an influencer, and so was Jesus. But of course, Jesus was a different kind of influencer than most of the people who have been spreading his message ever since. So it's like, what's it for? What, what are you actually here to promote? Are you here to hand down more of the gospel of grind set for the sake of accumulating more stuff? Right. Okay, well, you can own that. But I, it's like quantity matters more than quality. You know, In, influencer, such a strange word the first time I heard it. Mm-hmm. It's just such a neutral, it's like the word content. Content just means stuff. <laughs> yeah, things. <Just> things. <laughs> You, you know, like a toilet that's overflowing because clogged up has a lot of content. Am I supposed to celebrate that? Add more content? No, need less content. Actually, I think what we need is context, not content. Context is much more important than content. And context, and this is, you know, principle of the mental chiropractic work I do. All of the thoughts and stories you have matter a lot less than the frame inside which you, you hold them. That's what determines your quality of life. And you could be a real estate mogul 
and be very spiritually satisfied with that than actually have things to share with people. Like think of Ben and Jerry's. Yeah. Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream company. I think one of them just showed up at a rally for Julian Assange, the Australian journalist who's imprisoned right now in the notorious Belmarsh prison in London. Well, there's a guy who's, for the context for him of, and you know, the US media isn't speaking up for him. The US government wants him dead. He's going against the grain by using his power to advocate for someone who told the truth about US war crimes. You know, that's not that's not going to get you friends in Washington or in Forbes magazine. But it, yeah. for him, the context of being a mogul and an entrepreneur is that you have a platform to advance values that matter to you, no matter the cost to your reputation or, or, or your material uh, wealth. Right. Someone with a, a context that's just about money and acquisition and more is better is going to have a very different experience of life. And we have plenty of evidence to say that some of the most powerful, wealthy people in the world are miserable. And many of them were miserable before they became powerful and wealthy. And the power and the wealth is an attempt to fix that. And it never does. We have a chapter about the trauma in our politics. And we look at four different politicians, Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau in Canada, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the United States. We could have named any others. A lot of these very powerful, charismatic people had miserable childhoods, really, really difficult, which they coped with by developing winning personalities. And then they win on the strength of their personalities. They market their personalities. They brand their personalities. They connect with our trauma and our des- our desire for a you know strong daddy or a compassionate mommy. Our desire to believe that the government is acting in our best interest or that we're strong or proud or whatever. And then they go on to huge levels of power and they end up enacting policies that further traumatize people. Yeah, that's quite the cycle. It is, you know, and Trump may die an old man, but he's not going to die mm-hmm. happy. That's not going to end well for that guy. I was just going to say less about Trump and <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The idea you mentioned content and context, and I kind of love how you put that. And so kind of brings me back to that book. We've brought it up a few times. Obviously, it's it's what initially connected us, right? I'd be lying if I said otherwise. And so the the idea of creating that book, how did it come to be that you became a co-author of it? And if you were to summarize what the myth of normal means, massive question given such a rich book, mm-hmm. but uh, how, how did the book come to be and what's it about? Yeah. So my dad has four previous books about various sort of smaller topics, attention deficit disorder, uh, mind-body health, and the influence of emotions on disease, parenting and peer orientation, and then addiction. And there was always going to be this fifth one, you know, which is going to be his magnum opus. He hasn't written one in like 14 years. Hmm. And he wanted to do something about society as a whole. And it was originally going to be called Toxic Culture, How Capitalism Makes Us Sick. I come from good socialist stock. You know, my dad was a student radical in in the 60s. So, you know, we grew up with a critique of the capitalist system itself. Not that we're suggesting that like communism would be better or something, but that there are things embedded in the capitalist ethic, at least the way we do it in this society, that are not good for humans and living things. So he really felt he had this book in him. He also felt really daunted by it. And for six years, he tried to push that boulder up the hill and it kept rolling back down. And he gave up several times. And then finally, he came up with a new title for it, which was more uplifting, more interesting, more intriguing, or thought-provoking, The Myth of Normal. And at that point, he tried to write a book proposal, and he sent it to me. Now, I had edited his stuff in the past. I read it. I thought it had a lot of good stuff in it, and I had this vision of what it could be. I said to him, I'm going to need to seriously rework this to the point where I'm going to need to be your co-author. I'm not going to edit this one in, in, in the background. i got to come out from behind the curtain. And he said, I was hoping you were going to say that. Nice. So I came aboard out in the open, Skywar Mate, with Daniel Mate, wow. and um, what's the book about? Well, the title has many different ways you could look at it. One of them is that, you know, we tend to think that what's normal is natural. 
So whatever we see around us as the norm, we assume that's the way it needs to be. But what we're saying is that actually many of the things we take to be normal in the society are not only unhealthy, they're profoundly unnatural vis-a-vis human evolutionary needs. And they're totally aberrant if you look at the the span of our existence as a species. I mean, what we call civilization, if all of the human species was represented as an hour and a clock, what we call civilization would only take up six minutes. The rest of it, we were hunter-gatherers, living in small bands, subsisting on the land, moving from place to place. You know, and then agriculture came along and the, the Neolithic revolution, I think, and everything changed. And then we started being stationary and tilling the land and manipulating nature. And we were off to the races. Many of the things that have evolved since then as ways to cope with that have denatured us from our nature, from how we were designed. Now, we're very adaptable creatures. That's one of our strengths, right? You can't put an oak tree in the North Pole. You can't put an elephant, I don't know, on top of a mountain and have it survive. Human beings can exist in all kinds of different scenarios. One of the curses of that gift is that we're able to get used to a lot of stuff that isn't good for us. And one of the things human civilization does is it justifies getting used to things to the point where every society has a certain kind of internal propaganda system that's very subtle. It's not necessarily deliberate, but it trains people in its own image. It trains people to conform to it and to not think that anything else is possible. And in our society, we're not compelled at the barrel of a gun. We're compelled through education and indoctrination and the way we're raised. So another aspect of the myth of normal is that, you know, there's healthy people and then there's unhealthy people, abnormal people. But actually, we're all walking wounded because the way people are raised in a stressed, atomized society where the nuclear family, which itself is, you know, that nut often cracks. Even the idea that it's just this self-contained unit within the home is, again, aberrant with respect to our long history as a species, creating isolation, stress, loneliness, the traumas induced by generations of violence, war, oppression, subjugation, the trauma that's carried by the descendants of the oppressed, the trauma that's carried by the descendants of the oppressors, as uh, Resma Menachem has written about, you know, that both in the black nervous system and in the white nervous system, there is a memory of this profoundly unnatural relationship called slave owner and slave. And in my family, the Holocaust is in there. So all the stuff we're carrying combined with the fact that our society doesn't give us the resources to, to heal it or even feel it, we just act it out. We're looking at a society with a, with people who are perfectly normal who are walking around like acting crazy and some of some of them become very respected CEOs mm-hmm. and again like I said if normal is a myth then abnormal is also a myth so people who are addicted people who have mental illnesses people who are chronically ill rather than seeing these as cases of individual pathology we could see them as manifestations of what's hap- what has happened in their lives what's happened around them and their families and what's happened to that family in the larger society that which is all about different concepts Context, understanding people in context rather than as individual biographies. So really, I mean, the book is inviting a wholesale overhaul of how we look at human health. And um, there's a beautiful story that one of my dad's colleagues, uh, a Lakota psychiatrist, tells in the story uh, in the book. Not a story, but he relates that in the tradition that he comes from. When someone is sick, the community gathers around them and thanks them because they are showing the community that something is out of whack with the community. And they hold space for that person and they look inside themselves 
Think of the healthcare system we would have if even a fraction of that could penetrate. The book contains a very trenchant, I think, critique of the medical system, the Western medical ideology. It is an ideology. It thinks of itself as a science, but it ignores all the science that shows that trauma and illness, trauma and addiction, trauma and mental difficulties are intimately connected. So there's all kinds of things Western medicine does not want to see, even though it's staring it right in the face and there's hard scientific evidence for it. And that's considered normal. I mean, the, the, the matrix, Right. The movie The Matrix, you could sum it up as normal is a myth and a dangerous one and something else is possible, but it's going to it's going to take something. It was very emotional for me to read because having lost two brothers who each struggled with autoimmune in their own way, one was a little more struggling with autoimmune and you could argue that or at least Western medicine would argue that that's what he died from and the other addiction a little more and that's essentially what he died from. And But they're so similar. And back to the idea of pathology and mental illness, addiction and autoimmune disorder. Order. It's interesting to me having read When the Body Says No, as well as In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and feeling like when I read those, my personal experience was that this is amazing because once the teachers that I work with, once the doctors that I work with, once the parents that I work with all understand this, society's going to get so much better. One of the things I've realized, like you said, in the last 14 years and now reading this book is, and maybe this podcast will help things like this, is that trying to get that sort to the grassroots. And especially because we're talking about parenting oftentimes in utero to four years old. We also have an adopted daughter whose birth mom really struggled with addiction and as we call it, mental illness. And so those early formative years, like how do we get it to those parents? Because a lot of them aren't going to pick up these books. They just, they aren't even at a place that they can right now. And so that's something that I'm mostly thinking out loud, but to bring it to a question to you, you can touch on that certainly as well. But also I know something that you mentioned was that you aren't the doctor who wrote the book. You're the co-author. You're bringing your personal creative to it. But I know moving forward, you will go do more and more talks like this. I'm sure you can do events and all these sorts of things. The sky's the limit for you. What are some of the topics that you like bringing your own personal input into the most? It's a great question. Where are things going to change? There, there are, you know, pressure points. We got to, you know, hope that people with enough institutional power will read the book and or start thinking about these things. But people who aren't so high up in the system that they're incentivized to ignore it. Because at a certain level, you know, the CEO of Pfizer has no interest in anything changing. It's working pretty well for him. And that's independent of what you think about vaccines. That was true before COVID. And, you know, there's psychiatrists from Harvard who told my dad on condition of anonymity that to talk about trauma at Harvard Psychology is to risk, Harvard Psychiatry is to risk your career. So there are still strata of society and of academia and of elite thinking that are just Teflon when it comes to this stuff. But then there are the people on the ground who really do want to make a difference. And even starting to ask their patients questions about their lives. Like what if your brother had been asked, what's going on in your life? What, what are the stresses that you're dealing with? What stresses are you carrying from childhood? What difference might that have made? I don't know. There are little things people can do. It's about trauma awareness. You know, we can't, can't have a revolution overnight. Just awareness makes a big difference. Yeah, I am starting to go and speak on my own. I actually went to Florida last week. I was invited by a trauma support group, lots of different people, people who have been dealing with addiction, sexual abuse, childhood trauma, all kinds of stuff. And I was worried that I wouldn't have anything to say. And I, I it was a little sheepish, like, you know, I'm not Gabor Jr. But it turned out they didn't want Gabor Jr. They wanted me. And it was a lot of fun. I like talking about, you know, reframing the way we look at things. And I can speak for the book. You know, I can, I'm pretty conversant in these themes. What I'm not is a therapist and what I'm not is a doctor. So I can't give medical advice of any kind. I don't have any particular scientific expertise in this stuff. 
I don't generally speak too much about like the early, early childhood stuff, but I can speak to parents about what attitudes are health- helpful and what attitudes are not. I can talk to them about guilt and blame and how those things are counterproductive. I can talk certainly as an adult child. I'm not a parent myself, but as an adult child looking to have a, a more and more authentic and present moment relationship with my parents. This is the topic of my dad and I's next book, my dad's and my next book. I hate that conjugation. <laughs> our. Our next book and a workshop we've been leading for a long time. You know, that's a topic. I like the, the, the personal healing journey. And, and one of the nice things I found, actually, to bring it back to where we started, you asked me about, you know, musical theater. And eventually I want to tell my own stories in, 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 in one of my musicals. I actually want to, or maybe in just in writing, you know, creative writing or nonfiction writing, memoir, whatever, something. And I found, and I was told after the talk that the most electrifying parts of the talk, the times people were most with me was when I was just telling about my own story. Like someone asked me, tell, can, you, can you name a moment where something transformed for you? Like a healing moment. And I was able to name two and tell the stories very vividly. And in telling the details, somehow people related to themselves, even though it had nothing, the details were nothing like theirs. So the more I do this, the more I'm learning that maybe in the end, all of my various passions, which come from the same source, it turns out, are coming back to the same aim. Again, that coherence, that it all ties together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say that I have fewer talking points than my dad does. You know, you, you listen to my dad's interviews, you're, you're going to hear many of the same things over and over again, but you're worth hearing because many of them go against our conditioning. And he's, he's just very good with people and working with people, getting to people's deepest pain. And I have a lighter approach. I bring more humor to it, I think. Although he, he can be funny. Uh, I'm not going to say he's not funny. Also, he's just really tired. Like the guy's 78 years old and he was just in New York and then LA and Chicago, Toronto, all over Ontario, flew back to Vancouver for two nights. And then he effed off to Hungary and Romania <laughs> and England. Like, I don't know how he does it. I couldn't do that. I can't imagine either. I've filled out the little form on his uh, website a couple times over the years to, you know, in hopes of being able to interview coming from a- Good luck. Well, that's just it, right? And it's it's one of these things that really interests me is the idea that of imposter syndrome when we create this kind of content. And one of those things that's maybe a silver lining of not being able to interview somebody who is the real big expert like that in my case over the years is that one thing I've come to realize, and it was prior to reading the book, but it even crystallized, as you said earlier, reading the book was this idea that I could take someone like Jordan Peterson and someone such as your dad, and there's a sort of continuum on some of the topics that maybe exist, not to say they're polar opposites on every topic, but with some of them, right? Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to think that you need certain qualifications. And the other thing is that I've seen this because I work in hospitals for mental health all the time. And I see two polar opposite arguments with two different psychiatrists talking about the same kid. And so that has really opened my eyes, whether it's pop culture doctors such as your dad, Jordan Peterson, or the doctors that I see on the ground level to be like, well, you know, I'm just me, but my arguments in how to support children or youth, I think are no less valid because I don't have the scientific background. I'm not going to be writing prescriptions anytime soon, yeah. but it's been freeing, I suppose. Yeah. Well, quite frankly, I don't know if Jordan Peterson has the scientific background. He's he's sort of a, he strikes me as kind of a, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I mean, he is a doctor. He's a PhD in psychology, so maybe, I'm, but I want to ask you about that actually. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Because this is something that happens a lot. Mutual fans of my dad and Jordan Peterson say, we've got to get these guys together. And on the surface, at least, they have very little in common. In fact, we take a few shots at him in the book, particularly his parenting advice. 
Now, I can see that he's doing something for particularly young men in terms of helping them understand the troubles they're in, helping them understand the context of the world. He's connecting with them emotionally in some way I don't understand. And I think it's fascinating, the idea that someone could be both a Gabor Mate fan and a Jordan Peterson fan. And I kind of like that because I like contradictions. I think I like it a lot more than my dad does. <laughs> yeah. But I've imagined what would that look like and who would the moderator need to be if they were going to be on stage together because they're just going to really disagree on some things. But why do you think it is that some people find themselves drawn to both? I mean, I didn't know that it happens. So I'll preface it by saying I'm certainly guessing. But my short answer is that everybody has their own algorithm. This probably isn't by reading books, I can safely assume. So this is YouTube shorts or Instagram reels or something of that sort, TikToks that people have stolen and reshared. And then maybe listening to the, the Rogan interviews. Yeah, exactly. Like all these micro clips that end up on the internet and potentially going viral. And then from that, what are you truly getting about a person's overall story and character? and actual beliefs. I think they can be kind of watered down sometimes. They're the buzz clips, the buzzwords that got the 1.4 million views and not necessarily the deeper stuff. So I don't know that they would be fans if they read In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, you know, and then compared that to a clip from Jordan Peterson. Although I will say, you know, his rules of life also was not what really shows up too much in terms of the character that he plays in social media yeah. or if it's him. You know, the other thing I'd love to add is that I've always said, I interviewed Sister Helen Prejean, who, you know, has worked on death row for 40 years. And she agreed with this. I can't remember if I was on the show or offline, but we talked about the idea that I could go interview one of her clients and that would create an incredible show just as well. Put those two episodes side by side, the person who works on death row, the person who's serving death row because of their heinous crimes. And you're still going to have a lot of really interesting stuff. Yeah. The other thing that I'll mention quickly, because you got me on it, is no intention of talking about Jordan Peterson coming into this episode, but you mentioned that he, he tries to support you know young men who are struggling. One thing that I do see is youth in jail. And that is very fascinating. It just came up yesterday. We have so many youth right now who could never really have a girlfriend because they didn't fit in socially and they acted out criminally. One formally classified as incel and, you know, very serious stuff that you'll probably read about in the newspaper soon. And yes, Whatever it is, they're struggling at mass that I've never seen before. Right. I think there's truth to that. But then again, one of his clips will go viral and then he'll be knocked on the news for being an incel supporter. And so the reason I brought up the idea of death row as well as Sister Helen and her beliefs, certainly she doesn't believe in that we should kill people, but she has an empathy for that percentage of the person, as do I, working with youth serving homicide charges and things like this, understand that a big part of their character isn't that. I don't think I really answered the question about how they <laughs> are fans of both of them, but I see some some similarities. Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of a it's kind of a trivial question, but I mean, I guess people are looking for a father figure. People are looking for someone who's looking at the world and at least acknowledging that, hey, this is crazy. This is not good. It shouldn't be this way. That's the Venn diagram. I mean, you just put it. If I, if my saying that out loud helped you create that Venn diagram, then that was perfect because I do think how you just put it is the the summary of the overlap that I see. Yeah, and and there is a certain kind. They each have their own kind of compassion. I mean, Peterson seems to break into tears these days every time someone asks him a question. He he really feels for these these kids, you know. And my dad's whole thing is compassion. Now I think they have a very different approach to it, but people are looking for someone who will say to them, "You're not crazy. You're suffering." That's powerful. You know what's interesting, though, is I feel like I could moderate that. And I also feel that what has happened in, in reading this book again and hearing, like, as you put it, the, the shots taken referenced in the book, I really 
do think that, and who knows, you'd never know until you talk about it, but I feel like a lot of the statements maybe that have been made over the years would have shifted in recent years with his own struggles. Maybe. From what I can see as a somewhat consumer, again, the algorithm hits me and I see something. Yeah. And I think ultimately it's important to to say that the point was not to just take the piss out of Jordan Peterson or knock him down. The chapter was about how parenting is undermined in our culture by the culture of parenting experts and how people who give the most cockamamie, unscientific and counterproductive advice anything but what nature intended, really, get elevated to the top of the bestseller list and get all kinds of attention and they generate, because again, parents are so confused. And one of the things about that we say in the book, yeah, this comes from my dad, is that we have, we all have parenting instincts, but any instinct needs to be awakened by the right environment. Otherwise it won't, it won't get to express itself. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons parenting is so difficult for parents today is not because of parenting itself. It's because of the environment in which parenting is trying to happen. The the chapter is called Horticulture on the Moon. Obviously, trying to raise a garden on the moon would be a very frustrating and fruitless endeavor, but that doesn't tell you anything about the nature of gardening. So we're pushing back against the kind of normalization of behaviorist pseudoscience around raising children and uh, trying to say, hey, wake up. Let's all wake up to like, what do children need? And, you know, the children's singer Rafi is quoted at length, you know, his concept of child honoring that if we made a world that wasn't trying to train children to behave a certain way, but rather raising them and honoring them in a way that supports their development as independent, moral, social actors who are well connected to the the world around them, we'd have a much healthier world because you can instill good behavior in a child. And then 10 years later, they're shooting up a school because they're full of so much rage or they're getting sick 30 years later because they can't can't express anger and their immune system's going crazy or they're addicted to heroin to soothe the pain. And I think we have science on our side, mm-hmm. but obviously any argument we put forward, anyone's welcome to try to debunk it, you know, show show alternative evidence that, you know, spanking children is good for them, that it doesn't have way more negative consequences than it causes. Show evidence that, you know, sleep training, not picking up babies when they're crying doesn't have serious physiological and psychological and emotional consequences. Timeouts. Or that timeouts that timeouts make any sense. You know, you're basically leveraging the thing the child needs the most in the world and can't live without, which is parental contact. You're leveraging that against them to try and get them to bend them to your will. Yeah, if you could show me that that actually instills a a solid foundation of self-knowledge and authenticity and the ability to be yourself and to really operate in the world with autonomy and agency, I'd love to see it. But it doesn't stand to reason, certainly. At least, at the very least, what I hope is that people read this book and they actually have to question some of the things we take for granted as normal. Maybe we don't convince you entirely, but at least you got to just let's take another look at it because something about it doesn't compute. How's it going? The results are right in our face every day. You've got it. Yeah, that's just it. They very much are. Well, it's the youth I work with. I shared a bit about my brothers. I know a lot of people will say to me, oh, you, you know, because of our daughter being adopted and having struggles being brought into our lives. Oh, she's so lucky. And I always like to share Then it's not just, you know, lip service. I like to share that we are lucky. You know, it's very symbiotic. It's very mutual just as much. Uh, but I know what they're referring to. And it's that I was brought up in my professional life. And I, I got like kind of semi obsessed with parenting and coaching at a very young age myself, like heading off to college. I was trying to bring myself up on Neufeld and Siegel and then your dad's work later. And so I think those are three pretty well-rounded arguments in terms of all the three things you mentioned, you know, spanking and timeouts and sleep training. I have a great Neufeld story, if you like. Sure. Gordon Neufeld 
saved my life as a kid. I mean, not literally, but he's the first psychologist I ever saw. I think I was eight or nine years old, and my parents took me to see him. This is before he and my dad were writing together. You know, he was just wow. a practitioner. They were having trouble with me. They didn't know what to do with me. I was strong-willed. I was talking back. I just was angry all the time. Uh, I was acting out, basically having my, my teenagehood very, very early. And they brought me in because they just didn't know what to do with me. And he sat with them for 20 minutes. And then he sent them out into the waiting room and he sat with me for 20 minutes. And then he brought my parents back in. I can't remember if I was present, but they told me later. He said, your son's not the problem. You guys are the problem. Your relationship is the problem. The way you approach him is the problem. And they were kind of shocked, I think. And to me, it just was like, fuck yeah. Like something in me was like, I knew I wasn't crazy. You know, when I was five or six years old or four, maybe, I drew this picture, which my parents still have in the house, like with this little dinosaur crying and these two big dinosaurs, a mommy and a daddy dinosaur, like roaring at him. And the caption underneath scrawled in my like four-year-old handwriting is, is this any proper way to treat a child? Wow. So when Neufeld saw me and saw that I was just a sensitive kid trying to assert myself, trying to become myself and have a relationship with my parents, he gave voice to what was actually happening in my experience, you know, and my, it did in in some ways shift the way my parents treated me. They became more reflective, I think, after that. And and that's all parents can do is just try to raise their game. Right. As we start, we all start at a certain place based on how we were parented and what we've been through and how where the relationship is at and what's going on in life. And like you said, awareness. Awareness is everything. It's a special story and thank you for for sharing because you certainly don't have to share, you know, personal Stories like that, I think it means a lot when people can hear it, though. Um, you referenced the idea of it saving your life, I think is how you put it. And that's often when I tell a story about someone that I saw when I was a kid, I, I say it the same way. And that's a very deep way of saying it, but it's it's just true. And regardless of the celebrity nature of, of Neufeld, I think that it's a, a very, the power is in this, is in what ended up happening as opposed to necessarily who it was. Yeah. Along those lines, this happens every episode. I'm like, I could go on for another two hours, but speaking of parenting, I have to go make sure that our kids are having a good end of their day. One thing I do like to do on this show is create an opportunity for a case study, a if you were to give a bullet points kind of blog post on a, on a topic. And I would love to ask you because you have the mental chiropractic work you do. You seem very philosophical in the art that you create. You're an author. You've created a, an audio book, which we didn't even really get to talk about the actual creation of audio and voice and all these different topics. All this to say, if you were to kind of create a top two or a top five list of what you would recommend people do to live a good life, Life. What is Daniel Maté's way of doing that? My goodness. Well, thanks for the easy uh, softball question. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. I'm just going to borrow from different sources, different modalities that have helped me in my adult life suffer less. You know, I came into adulthood really suffering. And um, in some ways, learning how to suffer well is a skill. I think Stephen Jenkinson said that, who's a Canadian author that if you haven't spoken to, I highly recommend. He's He'll just blow your mind. He's written about dying and death, and he's also written about elderhood. Learning how to suffer well, which I think means learning to ask the question, not why is this happening to me, but what is this for? Hmm. Why is this happening through me? What is the, what is the, it, let me imagine that there's a purpose to this. What is this showing me? And I can't tell you how many fucking catastrophes my adult life has been dotted by, whether it's, you know, a, a very, um, a marriage that was very, very disillusioning, was marked, I think, by a kind of a betrayal and certainly left me heartbroken. And I was completely blind to it. Like I just, it was like, that was the disturbing thing. I didn't see it. Uh, and I was the only one who didn't see it. Shocking to realize that. Well, what's that for? It was a fast track to realize whoa, 
I got some blinders on in life. I must be really desperate for something if I can overlook this much evidence. Wow. I was underestimating how hurt I am. Last year, August, September, I was in a Mexican immigration prison because I overstayed my visa in Mexico for three and a half weeks. And I got COVID in there. What was that for? Well, it had its purposes. It woke me up to some things and it trained me in being with myself and observing the ways I cope under stress. So that's number one. Learn how to suffer well. If you're going to suffer, get the most out of it, which doesn't mean prolong it, drag it out. But don't resist it either, because what you resist persists. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not the content, it's the context that makes the difference. So what context are you holding all of that suffering in? You know, is it, I'm a doomed piece of shit who God hates or forgot or nobody loves me and I deserve this? Or is it, I'm a human being having a human experience who's growing through hardship? And if, if you need any inspiration in that, just read the memoir of, you know, the autobiog autobiography of Malcolm X or anyone who, you know, or Primo Levi who came out of the concentration camps and wrote eloquently about the beauty of life. So that's number one. And then, then number two, I'd say don't believe everything you think. Realize that you're the one who's making meaning out of life and that life is happening, but you rarely, we rarely see what's happening. We see through our filter, our story about what's happening. And that's very easy to miss. It's like we have a, a virtual reality helmet on, but we don't know we have a virtual reality helmet on until the screen cracks. And as Leonard Cohen said, there's a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. So look for that crack and be willing to be disillusioned, be willing to give up your illusions, be willing to have your heart broken, let life tenderize you, season you, make you cook you a bit. And, um, and then, yeah, put your attention on what is your intention and what are you here for? What are you here to create? If I can accept all the given circumstances of my life, I don't have to tolerate them, but I have to accept them. Now what? And make that a really important question. Put that at the top of your, of your list and ask life and whether, if you believe in God, ask God, if you believe in whatever. Put the question to something bigger than you and, and see what comes and really ask it in a, in a curious and open way. Those are, that's what comes to mind in terms of what I would tell people that's generally applicable to everybody. Well, I know you were teasing a bit and saying thank you for the easy question, but uh, you certainly hit that ball out of the park. I mean, there's really no wrong answers, which I think is nice, but it's just, I think when you are such a well-rounded person who does so many different things, hearing what your advice to people who maybe are struggling, just some things, because it could have been anything, but either way, whatever it was, would be helpful. And, and I think you really created pretty much a, a mic drop moment. One thing I do like to do towards the end, though, is allow us to pass the microphone over to you and just say, you know, along the these lines, or if you were to mention something that you thought my sharing might help, what's a question that you may ask me? Hmm. What is doing this podcast teaching you? Like, what's the curriculum for you as you grow and develop this? You clearly it started from a certain seed and it's gotten to a certain point. Where has it taken you that maybe you didn't expect, or where do you see it? What's it for in your life? Thank you for asking that. I can say as well as you did that thank you for the easy question because it's uh, I feel like I could do an hour long master class on, on some of the things that have happened. Now you're well. Now you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'll I'll mention whatever just kind of comes to mind first. And one of them I hadn't expected to come to mind until you asked it was when I first had started this show. I thought that whoever the guest was was really and this is funny because it could come back uh, come across as a diss to you and it's no, not meant that way at all. But I used to think that whoever the guest is really 
matters in that I thought I need to get a certain type of person or people who have this number of followers or these sorts of things. Like I think a lot of people that start out with interview shows are worried about how they're going to get big guests to use air quotes. And in doing the show, I've realized that every person has such incredible stories to share and also just like straight bullet point knowledge and wisdom that can be helpful to the listeners. There's such a stupid newfangled word for that. You know, it's a good get. (laughs) There you go. Anytime you turn verbs into nouns, this corporate speak, you know, it's just so, oh, he's a good get. And it's like what I said about social media, high value targets, low value targets. And you're actually seeing that everyone has jewels to drop if you ask the right questions. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. What else? You've got it. And then the extension of that, to your point, if you ask good questions, is just developing skills as an interviewer. And maybe I would even rather put it as a listener. The trick is when you're creating a podcast, you have to ask a question or guide something in some way, shape or form, as much as I'd rather just say, okay, here, you talk, I'm going to listen for an hour. But I do think that that's one of the most important points if I was sharing with someone starting a show is it's not about any of these kind of like random crap that we can think about. It's about just being a good listener and then your show will do as well as it will do. But being a good listener listeners is certainly where to start. That is Rogan's primary skill, isn't it? That's his, that's Rogan's gift. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anyone listen the way he listens. They're just, just kind of, kind of curious. Like, I don't, yeah. like, whoa, like, <laughs> you know, and if he disagrees, if he disagrees, he'll like push, like his interview with my dad was freaking amazing. It was just so good because the listening was so curious and genuine and he wasn't fawning. He wasn't trying to sound smart. He was just really trying to just have a conversation. And I get that vibe from you too. Like you just, you just want to sit with somebody and listen and then reflect and bounce off of them. I'm not a very good listener. You might be able to tell I interrupt. I'm, I'm eager. I, you know, (laughs) this is why I like the mental chiropractic work. I don't have to be this patient therapist. I'm invited to interrupt because we only have an hour and a half and we want to get to the bottom of something. It is a skill I could develop more for sure, but it's why I'm not a podcast host. Sure. I get it. I, yeah, I mean, all that is, is bang on, I think. And I appreciate the compliment. I do think that that's something that I would add is, and also why I do have more of a goal to make it full time, whatever needs to happen on the business side of things. Cause that's kind of the other side of the sword. Mm. But whatever needs to happen to make that is the reason for that is I know that I could be more, even more present if I was able to make it more of a percentage of my day. All that to say, thank you for the question. I got to run to grab my kids and it's just the timing of it not being a full-time thing and it is what it is, but I would hate to not ask where and why might people want to find you online? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to tell people why, but if you're stuck in your life with something specific and you want to try mental chiropractic or even just talk to me about it, you can go to walk with Dan. Daniel.com. Um, if you want to hear my musical theater stuff, go to danielmate.com or my YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel I didn't mention, but I think you referred to it called Lyrics to Go, where I break down lyrics of all kinds by all different kinds of artists, from Metallica to Liz Fair to Juice World. And that's on YouTube at Lyrics to Go. And uh, yeah, just see you around campus. I mean, I'm on Instagram, Daniel B. Mate, same thing as uh, Twitter. Last name is spelled M A T E, like mate. That's it. And check out the book. Oh, yeah. The Myth of Normal. Right up there, like you said, ahead of Matthew McConaughey. Pretty cool on to see. On the audiobook list. On the audiobook list. We still we still got to catch him on the, okay. on the hardcover list. So watch your back. Watch your back, Matthew. We got some work to do. Well, you mentioned Juice World. That's a great way to sum up this conversation and, and the YouTube channel because I want to listen to watch more of the episodes that you create. I think it's great what you're doing. I wanted to talk a lot more about lyrics and lyricism and the idea of storytelling through music, mm-hmm. but maybe we'll do that in a year from now or something like that. 
like that. I'd be very happy to. It's one of it's one of my favorite topics. Yeah, that'd be that'd be amazing. No rush ever. I know working with great people, there, there's never a rush. We could do that someday. Just want to say thank you for today's conversation. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Peace. Bye. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. JKL community, appreciate you being here so much. Thank you to our guest, Daniel. Like all guests, I really appreciate his time. Cannot say that enough. There are always so many great moments in these chats that I'm definitely looking forward to his next book and maybe running this one back. As always, we love receiving your DMs or texts about the show. So if you have any input on guests or topics, don't be shy. Just let us know. Until the next episode, all the best, and remember, just keep learning. You're one step closer to making your big dreams come true, but there's plenty more where that came from. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and if you know anyone who might love the show, send them a link. We'll see you next time on Just Keep Learning with Justin at Just Tries.